Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and all major podcast providers. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player, which is available on our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to connect with us, please post a question on our wall on Facebook or send me a tweet at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Steiermark, available at OrganicUniverse.com. Listeners of The Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. On today's show, Tom and I are going to talk to scientist Dr. Jonathan Lundgren about his research as well as his new endeavor with Blue Dasher Farm. First, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper Tom Theobald. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, June. And our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. Good afternoon, sir, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Lundgren, can you take a few minutes and tell our listeners about your research? Yeah, so I'm an entomologist and an agroecologist. An entomologist, I study insects, and uh, especially insect conservation. My research has two central themes. One is on ecological risk assessment, making sure that the use of pesticides and genetically modified crops are safe for the environment, especially friendly species like bees and butterflies. And then the other aspect of my research is focused on developing sustainable food production systems that don't rely on a lot of agrochemicals. That's kind of a general overview of what it is that I work on. I'd like to begin by asking you if you could talk about the role of biodiversity in food production and pest management. Sure. One of the central issues that I think we're facing as a society and then also as an agricultural community is just this this massive simplification of our food production systems, where nowadays we've kind of put a lot of our eggs into a very small basket. We're producing approximately 150 million acres of corn and soybeans in this country, where it used to be literally thousands of, of plant species that used to live in these same habitats where, this, where these two crops are now proliferate. So it begs the question of if we are trying to conserve species and all of the services that biodiversity provides, then where is that going to happen? Agroecosystems occupy 35% of the terrestrial land surface of our planet. And so we really need to be using these food production systems as a fantastic opportunity for conserving rare and beneficial species. And what we find is that within farms that are farming using biodiversity and ecological principles, these guys are actually extremely profitable. And so it's not a, it's not a situation of can we produce food and conserve the environment, but the, the real central question that we need to be asking is what's going to happen to us if we don't? Dr. Lundgren, you've said that there are operations that are very profitable using some of the uh, approaches that you're talking about. I wonder, as a non-farmer, I wonder why other farmers haven't picked up on this and joined in 
to this effort. Why are so many of the acres in the United States farmed industrially? Right. I think that that's a great question, and it's one that we're really trying to overcome. I think it comes down to, number one, is that these systems that used to be so productive, these monoculture systems where you grow thousands of acres of a single plant species, they used to be very productive, but we've started to degrade our soils. So there's this legacy effect, and then there's also an effect of the fact that there's just so few voices explaining to farmers what the opportunities are for farming more sustainably. Based upon your research, can you explain to our listeners exactly what the risks are that are involved with using the neonicotinoid-treated seeds as well as the genetically modified technology? Um, you know, I think that we often focus specifically on neonicotinoids or on genetically modified crops. In my view, these are these two technologies are really symptoms of a much greater problem, and that is the simplification of our agroecosystems. Where what, what I'm finding is that as we were working with farmers that are focused on regenerating soil and, in, and restoring biodiversity on their farms, they don't actually need a lot of these costly inputs, things like pesticides and, and, and how large quantities of chemical fertilizers and genetically modified crops. So I think that by by getting to the root of the problem, and that is uh, diversifying our food production, I think that we're going to solve a lot of these ancillary problems with the neonicotinoids and with the genetically modified crops. So farmers that are using biodiversity don't need a lot of agrochemicals and genetically modified crops anymore. And so by the role that, that these chemicals are are supposedly playing within our food production systems can actually be fulfilled using ecological principles and biodiversity. So neonicotinoids and uh, are, this is a class of insecticide that's coated on the seeds of, of a lot of crop plants right now. Approximately 13% of our terrestrial land surface of the continental United States are planted to seeds that are treated with these chemistries. They're systemic, which means that they're being taken up by the plants themselves, and, and then they tend to dissipate from the plant as the plant matures. But only 2 to 20% of those chemicals that are put onto the seed are actually taken up by the crop plant, which really begs the question of where does the other 80 to 98% of those chemistries end up? And the science is coming in now, and it's fairly strong, um, that these chemistries, these neonicotinoids specifically, are not um, staying put. They're turning up in the waterways. They're turning up in non-target species. They're turning up in plants, in field margins, and in other habitats that haven't been treated before. And this means that if 13% of, of the land area is treated, then that touches just about every other species within that food web. Dr. Lundgren, some of the work that you've done has been related to the decline of the monarch butterfly. Could you just explain for the listeners what it is you've found and, and what you believe to be the problem there? Right. The monarch butterfly, um, we've been losing monarchs at a, at a rapid rate, especially the eastern population of monarchs. 
for a long time, well, I think that the, these issues with species decline are complicated, right? And there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. And for a long time, um, or at least the, uh, recently, uh, science has kind of revealed that the habitat reduction associated with uh, the simplification of our food production systems, and these habitat reductions have reduced milkweed plants, which the monarch needs to survive. It's the only food that the larval monarchs eat, the caterpillars eat. We um, did additional work on that to try to uh, tease out some of the other possible causes for monarch declines. And we looked at the toxicity of neonicotinoids, which are uh, seed treatments on the crop plants. What we found is that they were extremely um, uh, quite toxic to the monarch butterfly caterpillars, the, the larvae. Um, such that even one part per billion in a very um, short exposure period was enough to cause sublethal effects where the monarch caterpillars were, were significantly reduced in size. And then we went out into the field and looked in monarch plants that were planted in um, or near corn production areas in South Dakota, and we found that the uh, that the milkweed plants were, um, 60% of the milkweed plants were contaminated at um, at doses uh, that were of concern in terms of the monarch butterflies. So not only are we reducing the amount of milkweed that's out in the environment for monarchs to eat, but the remaining milkweed is potentially um, is potentially contaminated. This also becomes really important when we're thinking about what can we do to save the monarchs. And if putting out additional milkweed without considering uh, or without reforming some of our pest management practices, then it's possible that we could be actually doing more harm than good. This is one thing that concerns beekeepers because uh, there's been a lot of talk about habitat improvement, and the beekeepers believe that the environment has been poisoned on a massive scale, and and we're concerned that habitat improvement may in fact be increasing killing fields because of this poisoning of non-target plants. Could you just uh, expand on that a little? Yes. Yeah, so the monarch, uh, the milkweed example, is a perfect illustration of the exact problem. So we, um, as a as an effort to try to conserve or to bolster the health and the nutritional status of the honeybees, we started to put out um, to hopefully reduce their stress and allow them or the, the expo- or reduce the exposure or the impact of those pesticide exposures to the honeybees. We planted conservation strips um, near treated corn fields cornfields that had been treated with neonicotinoids, and then on organic farms as well. And this was a, a project led by my postdoc and was funded by the National Honey Board. What we found is that um, that the conservation strips that we were planting to promote pollinator health ended up um, being contaminated almost universally with neonicotinoids. In fact, the, the organic farms that had never seen neonicotinoids had just as high a contamination level as the treated fields did. In regards to the milkweed plant itself, if it's planted on land that is not necessarily treated, but because of the fact that 
one of the adverse effects of neonicotinoids is that it's mobile in groundwater. Could it be that even if there's an abundance of milkweed plants, due to the fact that it's getting into the root system of the plant, is that part of the reason why we're not seeing the number of monarch butterflies that we're accustomed to, especially in the New York area. I know I've received a number of emails and messages, and even on my own property, I don't use any pesticide applications, but I do have a lot of milkweed, and I think I saw one monarch butterfly last season. And the same thing with the educational garden beds that are, you know, throughout the area. Right. This is what was kind of, this This is the exact point that, led us to look at the neonicotinoid contamination issue is that we're finding a lot of milkweed out there, even though the habitat reductions had, had uh, I mean, there was less milkweed than there used to be. There was still plenty of milkweed, but the monarchs weren't necessarily using it. And, and so we decided to start testing it, and lo and behold, it was contaminated at least 60% of the time. So... I think that this is a valid, uh, I think that this is a really important question that we need to really start resolving on a grander scale is we need to start testing some of these these conservation plants because, yeah, if we're putting them out there and then expecting some of these rare and beneficial species to be using them, then we better make sure that they're not... Um, they're not contaminated with some of these other pesticides, especially when the pesticides aren't necessarily needed for the crop production. And that's that's the other um, more insidious nature of, of the neonicotinoids is, is that if there was a pest that needed to be managed, then neonicotinoids might be a good option for that. But oftentimes, these neonicotinoid seed treatments aren't justified from an agronomic perspective. They don't improve yields, and they don't kill pests. Thank you. What sort of a time scale are we looking at to rejuvenate these soils? Uh, how long will it take to rehabilitate these soils that have been poisoned with the systemic pesticides? Oh, this is a great question, and I don't know the entire answer to that. Uh, the neonicotinoids can persist within soil, depending on the soil matrix, you know, what kinds of chemical properties and physical properties the soil has these chemistries can persist within those soils for, for a fairly long period of time. And we've been using them for a decade now, uh, pretty consistently. And so there's quite a reservoir of toxin within the soils as far as, as, far as we know. Um, what sorts of practices can help to reduce that most quickly? Boy, these are great questions that I think we need to really start resolving. But Number one is stop using them if they're not necessary. Well, I think that the first the first step in this whole process is just is to is to stop using uh, neonicotinoids if they're if they're not helping farming. Until we start with that very first step, we won't know how long these things are persisting out there and and what other practices we can use to um, uh, to, to to get them out of the out of the environment. Sources for uh, unseed, untreated seed have been uh, difficult to find. Uh, are we making any headway there? And that's particularly of concern with corn, I'm told. Right, yeah. Um, it's very difficult to find, for farmers to find untreated seeds. Um, a great example is uh, one of my master's students, um, Michael Bredesen, 
um, he was doing a, an efficacy study on neonicotinoids. Did they help sunflower production? And he literally, I mean, they, they, the company could not sell him untreated seeds because they didn't have a, a product number in their book for it. So they had to give us untreated seed. Um, this is a central issue. I think that farmers, if they if they start looking early, like uh, uh, November, December, and buying their seeds early, sometimes they can get it before the before some of these neonicotinoid seed treatments have been put on. Otherwise, going through organic operations is, or, or seed uh, seed dealers uh, would be another source. But I do believe that as farmers are starting to question the need and the, and the utility of these pesticides and the environmental impacts of the pesticides, I think that there's um, markets that are starting to develop on that. And so I'm hoping that that starts to increase in the, in the very near future. Dr. Lundgren, could you just share with the listeners about your new endeavor with Blue Dasher Farm? It's quite fascinating, especially since you're taking such an innovative approach to your research. Sure. I believe that we need some transformational changes in how we're producing food, right, along ecological principles. We need to be working with Mother Nature on our farm fields in our food production. Um, transformational changes do not come from the government. Transformational changes don't come from universities or large organizations. They come from the bottom up. And so in going out and talking with farmers that, were, that are using biodiversity and farming with these ecological principles in mind, it became very clear that they're doing things with very little scientific support. My wife and laboratory crew started a, a new endeavor, and it's called Blue Dasher Farm Initiative. And what we're trying to do is establish across the country a network of centers of excellence in regenerative agriculture. Regenerative because our the resources, the soil uh, biology, the biodiversity, these have been degraded to the point where simply sustainable agriculture, sustaining a broken resource like that, isn't going to get us where we need to be. We need to start regenerating these these resources. So it pairs research, education, and um, demonstration to try to support this this movement that's starting uh, within uh, within our agricultural systems. And we're really excited about it. Where can our listeners find out more information about the the farm? Right, uh, the Blue Dasher Farm website. It's www.bluedasher.farm, and we also have a crowdfunding campaign in six weeks. Uh, we've raised $50,000, which uh, is just fantastic. Uh, the support that we've had from the beekeepers, from the farmers, from the ranchers who are really on the leading edge, they they want to see this happen. And the consumers, too, who want healthier food with fewer contaminants. So, um, yeah, I would, I would if, if you believe in what we're doing, then please go go to those websites and consider supporting us. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been very interesting learning about your research as well as Blue Dasher Farm. And I sincerely hope that you can make some time to come back. Oh, I'd love to. I really appreciate it. And thanks for everything that you do, June and Tom. I've enjoyed this conversation, and I hope we have the opportunity to talk again. Thank you, Dr. Lundgren. 
And folks, please tune in each week as Tom and I continue to explore the impact of neonicotinoids on the environment, as well as the companion article for this interview, which will be available on TheOrganicView.com. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with The Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.